American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. In the centuries after 1492, European merchants and settlers get better and better at extracting profits from all kinds of endeavors, from Caribbean sugar plantations, from the Atlantic slave trade, from long-distance voyages to China and to India. As they do so, they lead an economic transformation, a gradual one, uh, but an increase in European wealth. But at the same time, as this era of expansion is going on, it's also an era of inter-European conflict. Different empires are fighting over the rewards of expanding empire. This process of conflict becomes, if you will, a process of unnatural selection. One empire, Britain, ultimately emerges dominant at the top of the heap. And its dominance is going to allow it to shape a new kind of economic transformation in the years after 1750 in particular. But the same dominance is also going to set the stage for a conflict within its most crucial uh, original colonies, the North American colonies, that will ultimately lead to American independence. Let's back up a little bit and talk about what these empires were trying to do in this two and a half century period of conflict. During the 1600s in particular, other empires, uh, France, the Netherlands, Britain, look at what Spain has achieved through its control over New World colonies like Mexico and Peru. Spain is able to extract gold and silver that lets it finance powerful militaries and expand its empire and its reach in other parts of the world. So these additional, these other European empires want to do the same thing. But they don't have Mexico and Peru, so instead they impose policies that are designed to extract all possible benefits from international trade in which their citizens engage. They impose restrictive policies that prevent their merchants uh, from selling raw materials anywhere but the home countries so that the home countries can remanufacture the raw materials into produced high-value goods, high-value manufactured goods. They prevent merchants from other countries from trading with their own colonies. Now we call these policies collectively mercantilism and they were the policy uh, of virtually every European state during the 1600s and the 1700s. Present-day economists don't think much of mercantilism, uh, but mercantilism made sense as policy in the 1600s and 1700s. In the 1600s and 1700s, European states are in constant conflict with each other. They fight wars on the high seas, they fight wars in the colonies, and they fight wars on the European mainland. These wars, above all else, are about controlling the gains from this new economic and territorial expansion. And they're very costly wars in every sense. For instance, between 1618 and 1648, in the region that is today Germany, there's a massive series of wars, what we call the Thirty Years' Wars, which kill probably one-third of the region's population and retard its economic growth for the next 200 years. But at the same time, even though these wars are very costly, these wars also leave one state almost unchallenged, and that state is Britain. But these wars 
require states to get better at doing the things that states tend to do, at extracting taxes and spending those revenues on policies that help to make the state stronger. And one state is better than all the others at that, and that's Britain. And Britain's success at doing those things that states do is probably why it emerges unchallenged in 1763 as the most dominant power in the world. In 1763, Britain finishes up a long war with its most important enemy, France. And its victory and the settlement that comes out of its victory forces France to cede to Britain almost all of its North American territories. It has to give up Canada to the British, and it has to surrender Louisiana to Spain. Now this leaves America's uh, colonies, or Britain's American colonies, the 13 colonies, in a much safer position than they had been before. Let's look a little closer to how Britain actually achieved this dominance. Let's find out how it was able to build a military that could defeat the armies and navies of much larger states in terms of population, states like France and Spain, for instance. Now, over the 1600s and 1700s, the British are able to develop a set of techniques that really work for British society and the British state. Now, Britain becomes perhaps the most heavily taxed empire in Europe. Again, modern-day economists would tell us that high taxes tend to retard economic growth, and yet this wasn't the case in Britain. One reason why Britain was so successful, despite the high tax burden it placed on its citizens, a tax burden that is driven by the necessity of financing and expanding military, is that most of those taxes tended to be excise taxes, taxes that were levied on trade goods, imports, and to some extent exports. Because trade was constantly increasing during this period, because Britain is getting better and better at controlling world trade, there's a bigger pie to go around. And so when Britain takes a bigger slice out of that pie, when the British state takes more out of trade and taxes, the British uh, national economy is better able to absorb that hit than other economies were able to do. Likewise, Britain is very successful at creating a central banking system. The foundation of the Bank of England at the end of the 17th century enables the British government to borrow money cheaply from its own citizens. By paying a lower interest rate, even though the total debt burden rises three times over in the years between 1700 and 1763, the British state is still able to finance its growing military effectively and efficiently through borrowing. So again, many contemporary economists would tell us that what Britain was doing was exactly wrong. Restrictions on trade, a high debt burden, and a high tax burden, these things are all supposed to inhibit national growth, inhibit the ability of the economy to expand. And yet by 1763, when Britain had uh, the highest national debt in the world per person, when it had the highest tax burden in the world per person, the British economy was perhaps the most prosperous and the per capita income, the income per individual in the society, was perhaps the highest in the world. And there was no doubt who ruled the seas. Britain had achieved military dominance over the circuits of world trade. 
through, in particular, the Navy, that its tax and spend policies had been able to finance. The recipe of free trade, low taxation, and low government spending, and especially low government borrowing, simply wasn't likely to work in a world in which most other governments, including some of the most aggressive empires, were following different policies. This was a world of competition. This was a world in which conflict was the norm. And Britain is the best at creating a state that is able to fight wars and expand its empire, and through expanding its empire, expand its economy. Its success in doing so, in fact, sets the stage for a series of additional economic transformations. As more and more trade flows into Britain, as more and more revenues from sugar colonies, from the North American colonies, and from long-distance exchanges, in particular with Asia, as those things happen, the British economy continues to boom throughout much of the 18th century. And as it does so, it continues to change in ways that set the stage for a transformation that would finally bring European societies, or at least some of them, or some people in them, out of the world that Thomas Malthus described. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.